We read the Holy Scripture in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. We're going to begin reading at verse 13. Prior to that is the story of how Jesus was captured in the Garden of Gethsemane, how he was unjustly and cruelly treated by the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night, how he was led to Pontius Pilate, and that's where we find him in the text. The Jews have accused him to Pilate. Pilate tried to wash his hands of this and sent him to Herod, hoping that Herod would deal with it, but Herod sent him back to Pilate. And neither Herod nor Pilate found any fault in Jesus. Let's begin reading then at verse 13. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people, said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people. And behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof ye accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for of necessity he must release one unto them at the feast. And they cried out all the more, all at once, saying, Away with this man! And release unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. Pilate, therefore willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. But they cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said unto them the third time, Why, what evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired, but he delivered Jesus to their will. And as they led him away, they laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country. And on him they laid the cross, that he might bear it after Jesus. And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which... They shall say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? And there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today 
shalt thou be with me in paradise. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And all the people that came together to that sight, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned. And all his acquaintance and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off, beholding these things. We read God's word that far, and we consider as the text of our sermon verses 32 through the first part of 34. And there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Today we commemorate the death and crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ, and I trust that the story is familiar to all of us. As we have seen already in the reading of the scriptures, that story of Good Friday, the story that involved many different characters, such as Pontius Pilate who had come to the firm conclusion that Jesus was completely innocent and who had come to the firm decision that he would release Jesus after chastising him. But when he announced this decision, the Jews shouted out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And even then, Pilate tried to release Jesus, saying, Why? What evil has he done? But when the Jews simply cried out all the more, Crucify him! Crucify him! And especially when the Jews threatened him, as we read in the Gospel of John, saying, If you release this man, you are not a friend of Caesar, because he claimed to be a king, And by that threat to report to Caesar that Pilate had released someone who claimed to be a king, Pilate, in fear for his own flesh and life, gave the sentence that they desired, sat down at his judgment seat, wrote down the verdict, condemning an innocent man knowingly to the death of the cross and sending him away. I trust that you know the story well, how the soldiers then, although we are not told all the gruesome details, they must have gathered up the items necessary for a crucifixion. There in the judgment hall, the wooden cross beams, the long beam and the cross beam, and perhaps a a pail of sharp iron nails, and a hammer or two, and a shovel or two to set those crosses in place and to pound the nails and then laid the long beam on the back of the condemned upon Jesus' back and led him out to the place of execution. And how Jesus himself, having already suffered greatly that night, a sleepless night, in which he was violently and cruelly treated, in which saliva was spit into his face by his tormentors and his back was ripped by the scourging whip of the Romans, and his head pierced with a thorny crown, now had to carry his own cross through the streets of Jerusalem on his back that burned with pain. And how Jesus brought that cross out of the judgment hall through the streets of Jerusalem, the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, out to the gate of the city, but there could bear it no longer, falling down on his knees. 
and how the soldiers took hold of one Simon of Cyrene and said, You, sir, you carry the cross of Jesus the rest of the way, which he did, carrying it outside the gate, outside the walls, to a place called Calvary. And now in our text we are told that it was there with two other malefactors that Jesus was crucified. And as we find in the prayer of Jesus, they knew not what they did. That's what we commemorate today on Good Friday, the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we might wonder, why would this be called Good Friday? Why would we affix the word good to this day, which is so full of bloodshed and violence and brutality, in which we have to hear a story about a man who was so cruelly and brutally treated? And then we must remember the testimony of the scriptures that it is indeed a good day. Because what happened there at Calvary that day became the content of the good news the glad tidings of great joy, the gospel of salvation. The gospel is the message of Jesus Christ crucified. And there's that message that manifests to us the greatness of the love of God, the faithfulness of God, the wisdom of God, the power of God, all of the marvelous virtues of God that come together there at Calvary and manifest themselves in a bright glorious explosion of divine light in the accomplishment of the salvation of his people. So let's consider together Jesus crucified, first of all nailed to the cross at Calvary, secondly crucified between two malefactors, and then finally the marvelous prayer of Jesus for his tormentors. We are told in the text that the place to which Jesus was led was known as Calvary. We do not know with exact certainty where Calvary was located, but most people seem to agree that it was a place outside of the city. Not inside the city, but outside the gates and the walls of Jerusalem, probably located to the northwest of the city. Calvary was a place that was located next to a road, a path on which many people were traveling because of the Passover feast, going in and out of the city. So it was a place where this event would become a public spectacle, no private secret event, but a public event for all to see outside of the gate, not inside the city. A place where criminals were executed. It was known as Calvary. The Hebrew term was Golgotha, as we find in the other Gospels. And both the term Golgotha and Calvary have the same meaning. They both mean a skull. As we read in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verse 22, and they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. Calvary means skull. But we do not know exactly why it was called the place of a skull. There have been various explanations of that by commentators throughout history. Some have thought that there was a legend that the skull of Adam was found there. That, no doubt, is a mere myth. Others have thought that this was a place of execution of criminals, And many of those criminals were not given a proper burial, but their bodies were left scattered around this place where they were left to rot so that many skeletons and skulls were scattered around this place. Thus it was called Calvary. That may be true, but it seems most likely that it was called Calvary or Golgotha because the place itself was a hill in the shape of a skull. But whatever is the explanation, the scriptures draw our attention to the name of this place and the fact that it took place at that place, Calvary, Golgotha, the place of a skull. 
because that image of a skull throughout all of history has been the symbol of death. A skull, a naked, bare skull, from which the flesh and the blood of the person whose skull it was no longer is to be found, is an image, a dreadful image, of the reality of death. This was the place of a skull, that is. It was the place of death. It was to that place that Jesus was led on Good Friday. We are told that there at Calvary, they crucified him. They crucified Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. The word crucifixion means, literally, to be fixed to a cross. It is the act of fixing someone to a cross. Now, that was done in various ways by the Romans. Sometimes they would take the criminal and they would attach him to a cross by means of ropes. They would tie his hands and his feet to the cross. And they would leave him there, tied to the cross, exposed to the sun, to the birds, to the elements, there to suffer for days and days, dehydrating, starving, and perhaps dying of hypothermia or some other cause, a slow, agonizing, miserable death tied to a cross. But Jesus was not tied to that cross. Jesus was nailed to the cross. He was nailed to the cross in fulfillment of the prophecies of the scriptures. David, in the midst of his sufferings, was led to write down in Psalm 22, prophetically, they pierced my hands and my feet. And when Jesus, when David wrote that, he was speaking prophetically of the Christ, of his son who was to come, that they would pierce his hands and his feet. And therefore, his hands and feet could not, must not, be tied to the cross, but they must be pierced. The prophet Zechariah also wrote, They shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him. And the Gospels indicate that it was for this reason that Jesus was crucified in fulfillment of the Scriptures. This was no accident. That Jesus was pierced to the cross, but it was according to God's plan and according to his prophecies in the Scriptures of long ago. According to those scriptures, Jesus was laid upon that long cross beam and his hands were pierced with those iron nails, those long spikes, the Roman soldiers brutally pounding their hammer until the spikes drove through his hands into the wooden cross beam and into his feet, into the upright beam. And having affixed him to that cross, having crucified him, they lifted up that cross And that too, according to Jesus' own prophecy. Remember what he said to Nicodemus? Just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness by Moses, so also the Son of Man must be lifted up. Being nailed to the cross, he was lifted up on the cross there at Calvary. He was crucified. And crucifixion was one of the most gruesome, one of the cruelest forms of torture and punishment ever invented by man. It existed even before the Romans, but we are told that the Romans perfected it, and they loved to use that kind of execution on their criminals as an example and a deterrent to others. Crucifixion involved great physical pain, and it's interesting that the Gospels don't really explain all of that to us. What was the physical pain of the cross? The Gospels don't really mention the pain and the agony of having nails driven through your hands and feet, piercing your skin and your muscle, and then hanging, hanging there with the nails through your hands, through your muscles, the throbbing of the pain that that must have involved, or the fact that crucifixion involved bleeding and the loss of blood and suffocation and 
throbbing headaches and extreme thirst and all kinds of other sufferings. We aren't really told about any of that. We don't even find the emphasis really placed upon the fact that being crucified was a death of extreme shame and humiliation. For anyone who was crucified, hung up there practically or perhaps even entirely naked, for everyone who passes by to look upon, to scorn, to shame, to ridicule, to laugh, and to mock at these criminals, these lowlifes, these dregs who have gotten what they justly deserved. Imagine the suffering of the families who had to watch their loved ones, now accused and condemned, hanging up on those crosses. But we don't read much of that in the Scriptures. In the case of Jesus... All of those outward physical sufferings, which were very real and which were part of his suffering, were nevertheless only outward manifestations of the greater suffering that he was enduring that was symbolized by that cross, but what, which was otherwise invisible to the eyes of those who watched. That cross symbolized that he was cursed The cross was a symbol of God's curse. Moses wrote that long ago in the law in Deuteronomy. Moses was speaking ultimately of the cross of the Messiah who was to come when he wrote in Deuteronomy 21, If a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be to be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain on that tree all night, but thou shalt in any wise bury him, For he that is hanged is accursed of God. In the Old Testament, in Israel, if a man was to be put to death, perhaps through stoning or through some other means, and then after he was put to death, he was hung up on a tree, exposed to the bright, hot rays of the sun, as it were, exposed to the fury of God himself, that was a sign that he was accursed that God spoke his curse upon that man because of his crimes, because of his sins against the law. Imagine being hung up there on a tree, exposed to the sun all day long. That was a symbol of being exposed to the wrath and the judgment of God against us for our sins. Jesus was hung up on the tree. He was put up on a cross, and that was the way of his death. Very painful, very shameful. But above all, the greatest suffering was that it was a manifestation and a symbol that he was cursed of God. Up there on that cross, he hung exposed to the wrath and the fiery indignation of the holy and righteous God against the sins of sinners for their sins. But therein lies the mystery of the cross. Because this Jesus had just been declared to be completely innocent by Pontius Pilate. This Jesus had lived his whole life perfectly righteous. He had never committed a single crime against the Roman Empire or against the kingdom of heaven. He had kept all the laws of God. Even in his inward heart. He was not worthy of death. He was no criminal. He was a righteous man. Why then was he crucified? Why then was he cursed by God? Because this Jesus hung up on that cross, nailed to it, exposed, as it were, to the wrath of God, was the only begotten Son of God, whom God himself sent into the world for this very purpose, that he should be crucified. It was God's own Son who had come into our flesh, who was crucified, who was lifted up on the cross, not for his own sins, but who had come into the world, the Messiah, to have all the sins of his people loaded upon him, This one on the cross is he who became sin for us, who knew no sin, who had never experienced sin, who had never thought any sin, 
who had never done any sin, but who became sin, to whom all of our sins were imputed. This Jesus is the beloved Son of God, sent and given to lay down his life for us sinners. He was crucified, the text says. But we are not to misunderstand when the text says he was crucified as if something happened to him that was against his will and that was outside of his power to prevent. This same Jesus earlier said to Pilate, I have power to lay down my life and I have power to take up my life again. You can't do anything against me unless I allow you. Jesus was crucified because he allowed them to crucify him. He allowed them to pound the nails through his hands and feet. He allowed them to lift him up on that cross. He allowed himself to suffer the agony and the wrath of God, the curse, because he was giving his life a sacrifice for sinners. The death of the cross was ordained by God and specifically prepared by God as that form of death upon which his son would die. Because there on the cross, in a very visible and public manner, he could lay down his life. A sword wasn't put into his heart. A bullet wasn't shot into his head. He wasn't forced under the water to drown. He wasn't poisoned. He was hung on the cross. So that there, hanging on the cross, pounded to it through the nails, he might visibly lay down his life. That was the only begotten Son of God on the cross, giving his life for us sinners as a sacrifice. And that's why the cross didn't happen to him. He took the cross upon himself for you and me. And that's why the cross is the greatest manifestation in all of history of the love of God for us. God commendeth his love toward us, Paul wrote, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ, Paul wrote elsewhere, hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, as it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. He redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. That's the meaning of the cross. And redeeming us from the curse of the law, he also broke our chains. He broke the power of Satan. He delivered us from those bonds and set us free. So what can we say but what the apostle wrote? God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. We are told in the text another very important truth. We are told that there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. The malefactors. He was crucified not alone. Yes, yes, he was crucified alone in a certain sense. That he alone bore our sins and was forsaken by God on his cross. And yet, to the outward eye, he was not alone, but there were two others with him. And there's a very important truth revealed in that as well. He was crucified with two others, but two others who were not like him at all, except that they were human beings, as he was a human being. But in that, but in all other respects, vastly different from him, 
They were malefactors. A malefactor is an evildoer. That's the literal meaning of the word. Evildoer. They were evildoers. These were men who were thieves. They were robbers. They were gangsters. They were rebels. It's very possible that they were cohorts of Barabbas who had made insurrection against the Roman government. They had killed. They had stealed. They had no regard for human life. They had committed crimes worthy of death. They were very wicked and very evil men. And Jesus was crucified with them. With them. What humiliation. What sorrow. That too was fulfillment of the prophecy. Isaiah 53, verse 12, the prophet wrote, looking forward hundreds of years into the future when the Messiah would come, he said about that suffering Messiah, he was numbered with the transgressors. Numbered with evildoers. Reckoned, associated with them in his death. What humiliation. For this Jesus, he was no malefactor. He was a benefactor. A benefactor is someone who does good. He had only always done good. He had gone about healing the sick, the blind, the lame, casting out demons, feeding 5,000 with bread and fish, saving his disciples from the storm at sea. He was a benefactor. He had only done good. He had preached the good news. And this benefactor, this Jesus, was crucified with malefactors, robbers, evildoers, as if he was one of them. We can hardly imagine a man, a mere man, who is accused of a crime he didn't commit, who is condemned, who is imprisoned, thrown into the prison, the penitentiary, with all those who are true malefactors, with robbers, gangsters, thieves, murderers, abusers. What sorrow to be numbered with transgressors, to be associated in your death and your punishment with criminals yourself not being one. Yes, that was part of the sorrow and the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ, part of his deep humiliation to be numbered with the transgressors. The death of those malefactors was justice being realized. They deserved to die on those crosses. But The death of Jesus was also justice realized. Only he who was a benefactor and no malefactor in himself had taken upon himself all our evil deeds. He was numbered with the transgressors also for you and for me so that we might never be reckoned and associated with criminals in our death but that we might be forgiven There's another very important truth in the fact that he was crucified with the malefactors. And now I call your attention specifically to his position between them. The scriptures are very clear about that as well. Not only was he crucified with malefactors, but we are told that one was on the right hand and the other was on the left. It was not so that Jesus was on one end, and then there were two malefactors next to him. Jesus, malefactor, malefactor. Or that he was on the other end, and then the two malefactors next to him there. Jesus was in the midst. And they were on his right hand and on his left. What does that mean? What are we to make of that? Why do the scriptures emphasize that? Why are we to know that? Why does Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John want us to know that? 
Why does God want us to know that? The answer is clear when we just consider all the facts about those malefactors. When we consider in the first place that they were both malefactors, both criminals, both worthy of death. And in that regard, they represent all of us. They represent the whole human race. We're all malefactors. We're all worthy of dying on those crosses. But in the second place, when we consider this fact, that while one of those malefactors continued to mock and ridicule Jesus and rail against him, just like the passers-by, impenitently, unbelievingly, rejecting Christ on the cross, the other malefactor was brought to a humble repentance. He recognized that Jesus had done nothing to deserve this. And somehow, by God's grace, he recognized that Jesus must be the Christ dying for my sins and for the sins of all his people. And that malefactor, being humbled to repentance, being brought to a true faith in Jesus Christ, hanging on that middle cross, also rebuked the other malefactor and beseeched the Lord, remember me, do not forget me, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And to that malefactor the Lord said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise today. Those are the facts of the story. So what then does it mean that Jesus was crucified between these two men, both sinners, but one of them saved, one of them damned, one of them brought to repentance and faith, one of them left in his sins to die and to perish forever as the punishment for his sins. We see there that Jesus Christ and through his cross, makes a division in the midst of humanity. He makes a separation between two camps, between two sides of the human race, all of whom are sinners, all of whom deserve to perish. And yet Jesus came to make a division, a separation, Jesus said that in his ministry as well. He said, for example, in Matthew 10, I came not to bring peace on earth, but I came to bring a sword. I came to set a man at variance with his father, and a son-in-law at variance with his father-in-law, and a mother against her daughter, and a daughter-in-law against her mother. And we can now add here a malefactor against his fellow malefactor. Jesus says, I came to make division. I came to separate mankind into two. Now, we must not misunderstand that because the same Jesus who said, I came not to bring peace on earth, was heralded at his birth by the angels who said, Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. This same Jesus who did not come to bring peace among all the nations in a physical and earthly kind of peace, He came to bring peace within his church. And it was through his very shedding of his blood on the cross that he realized peace between Jews and Gentiles, between black and white, between bond and free, between rich and poor, between male and female, between mother and daughter, son and father. If they are believers, if they are elect, He came to realize peace within his church, not to create division. Jesus does not create division in the church. Sinful men do that. And yet, Jesus came to make division within the human race. That's where the true division is. And Jesus himself made that division through his cross. 
There was a deep divide between those two malefactors. And that deep divide was Jesus on the cross. And therefore, we see here too, if not necessarily proven by the text, certainly alluded to and certainly we see the shades here of the truth of eternal predestination. A truth clearly taught in the scriptures that God has chosen some to everlasting salvation and others he has determined to condemn in the way of their sins. That he has chosen some to be vessels of mercy like that repentant malefactor and others vessels of his wrath. And this decree of predestination, therefore, is realized in the cross. And that cross, then, is not the making available of salvation for all men to take or to leave by their own free will and choice, but that cross is the accomplishment of perfect redemption for all the elect. That's the Reformed faith taught in our Canons of Dort, in the second head of doctrine, in the eighth article, where we are taught that as Reformed believers, we confess that Jesus died on the cross to make atonement, to earn redemption for all the elect, only the elect. So that it is a limited atonement. And yet, an atonement that spreads into all nations, kindreds, tribes, and tongues. Jesus died for men in all nations throughout the whole world, but only for those whom God had chosen and given to him, like that malefactor who repented and believed. We are brought then to humble gratitude, are we not? as God has led us also to repent and believe in this Jesus, to know, too, that we are one of the elect for whom he died. Finally, I call your attention to the prayer of Jesus. This is a marvelous and mysterious and wondrous thing. as cruel men are driving nails through his hands and feet, lifting him up on the cross, mocking him, reviling him, taunting him, telling him if he is the Christ to come down from the cross. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Do we not see here the gentleness and the meekness of the servant of the Lord? The humility, the lowliness, the kindness and love of Jesus? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Could not Jesus have called down the curses of heaven upon these men? Upon Pontius Pilate, upon Herod? The soldiers, the Jews, the passers-by, could he not have called down justly and rightly? Were they not committing the greatest crime, the greatest injustice the world has ever seen? And who was doing that? Who was doing that? Pilate, Herod, the Jews, the Romans. We were doing that. We were doing that. You were doing that. I was doing that. We were nailing him to the cross. We were. Every sin that we commit, we reveal our despising and rejecting of Jesus. We're revealing that we don't want him. We don't need him. We don't care about him. We want this life. We want this world. We want these pleasures. We want these treasures. Leave me alone. Let me live how I please. Don't give me Jesus. I don't want him. I don't want his kingdom. Put him on the cross. That's what we're saying. Every time we sin, we're saying me, not Jesus. 
And yet Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus did not return evil for evil. As they were taunting him, railing on him, mocking him, our natural response would be to rail back at them, to mock them, to return evil for evil, to spew forth our hatred and to express our desire for their downfall, their destruction, and to express how long, how much we long to take revenge upon them. None of that came out of his mouth. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He revealed love for sinners who were crucifying him. For they know not what they do, he said. Did they not know what they were doing? Did they not know that Jesus was innocent? Did they not know that Jesus was the Son of God? He had calmed the storm. He had fed 5,000. He had healed the sick and cast out demons. Did they not know what they were doing? Did they not know how to pound those nails into his hands and feet? Did they not know the cruelty in their hearts? Do we not know what we are doing when we sin? And yet Jesus said they know not what they do. Not as if they knew nothing about what they were doing, but there was something they didn't know. There was an aspect of what they were doing that they didn't understand, that wasn't in their minds, which meant that their sin, although dreadful and grievous, was not the unforgivable sin. As the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 10 writes, they did not commit that unforgivable sin of willfully, knowingly, treading underfoot the Son of God and counting the blood of the covenant an unholy thing and blaspheming the Holy Spirit after receiving the knowledge of the truth. That in Scripture is called the unforgivable sin. There's no forgiveness for that sin. But they weren't committing that sin. That's why Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They don't understand the dreadfulness, seriousness of their crime. They don't realize that the very blood they are shedding is the blood I'm shedding to save them from their sins. Jesus did not pray for every single person there who was crucifying him. He doesn't pray for every single person in the world, just as he did not die for every single person. But he was praying for those who crucified him, who also belonged to him, for whom he was shedding his blood. And that could have been Romans, that could have been Jews, that could have been those of high degree and those of low degree. It could have been men or women because he died for all kinds. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We esteemed him not. We despised him. But he prays for us. Forgive them. And the Father hears that prayer. The Father forgives us. He forgives you. Not because you don't know what you are doing when you sin. Not because I am completely ignorant of all my sins. Although I do commit sins of ignorance, and so do you. But that's not the reason why he forgives us. He forgives us because of the blood. Because of the cross. And now as we go forth today... Will we follow? Will we also pray for those who torment us that the Father might forgive them? There are those who torment us, whether personally or ecclesiastically. There are those who rail against us, curse and condemn and anathematize us. Is it possible and have you considered the possibility that they 
too, know not what they do. We pray for them. Like our Lord, we do not return evil for evil. We do not cast curses upon those who cast curses upon us. We do not pray and hope and seek their downfall and destruction, but rather, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The Lord forgives great sinners like us. The Apostle Paul, and with this we close. In 1 Timothy 1, he wrote to Timothy, I was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, injurious. I pierced the body of Christ when I attacked his church. That was me, Paul says. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Amen. Gracious God and merciful Father, we give thee thanks for the gospel of the cross and the riches and treasures that thou dost bring out to us from that message. We marvel before the cross of our Savior, and we pray that this day we may have been encouraged, humbled, comforted, and brought again to a stronger faith in the Lord Jesus. And may the message of the cross drive us to our knees in repentance as well, in recognition that whether we have committed our sins in ignorance or in knowledge, that we are worthy of those crosses. Father, be merciful to us sinners and forgive us. And forgive those who may sin against us, not knowing what they are doing. Forgive all thy people, Father, for the 